XXXFM 98.3. People-powered radio in Canberra since 1976. Now in our fifth decade and still going strong with your support. Visit 2XXFM.org.au to listen online and find out how to subscribe, donate, sponsor, or become involved as a volunteer at your community station. Yeah, what a great promo for Two Double X, uh, Marion. Five decades and still going strong. Yeah, and I'm what? Are, oh, Jeffrey, you're six and a half decades and still going strong. Happy birthday for last weekend, Thank my love. Thank you very much, uh, Marion. That's very thoughtful. And I'm seven decades and still going it's, strong, whether it, they like it or not. Sometimes you shake your head and think, yeah. oh, "How did we manage? What, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> Why did we bother? I thought I wasn't going to be here now." All right, so welcome listeners. Uh, my name is Jeff. My co-presenter is Marion. Good morning. Good morning. Well, not good. Well, Foggy morning. Chilly. Freezing yeah. morning. Yeah. yeah. Stay in bed and listen to the radio. And if you have to get up, dress warm. A couple Absolutely. of layers. At least a couple of layers. Yeah. Probably by the time we get out, we'll be able to see Mount Ainsley again, but I couldn't see it this morning and I live right in front of it. <laughs> well, I just wonder whether people are... Um, uh, being a bit lackadaisical about uh, the flu, flu, uh, winter flu. Yes, um, I don't know. Well, they've got clinics everywhere, Jeffrey, for people to get uh, flu shots for uh, 20 bucks or nothing if you're on a pension, I think. Um, pretty much, yeah. So, I mean, the flu is going to be bad. Get a flu shot and no matter that the, they say the pandemic is over, mm. Um, COVID-19 is still around. That's so, true. Yeah, really. The the mask idea is not a bad idea. And I remember remember the days, God, four or five years ago when we used to think that it was strange that Japanese people wore masks all the time. Absolutely. Now it seems normal, doesn't it? It does. Yeah? And people have got all sorts of glam masks made up and, uh, yeah, it's quite a good idea. And it wasn't seen as peculiar, was it? It was just well, it, the, uh, no, it, normal. Well, it's normal. Normal behaviour. But the thing is, people don't cover their faces anymore when they cough or they sneeze and they'll cough all over you and not think twice about it. And, you know, the flu and COVID, it's air, they're airborne diseases, which means you cough or come up too close into someone's face and breathe on them, you're transmitting disease quick, yeah. really quickly, really easily. So A mask is still... Wear a mask, darling, yeah. on, on public transport at least. Well, I certainly and do. And confined spaces, yeah, probably I was, better. I think that's very good advice, Marion. So yeah. um, take that to heart if you're listening. Okay, welcome listeners to today's edition of News from the Drug War Front, which is brought to you as usual by... Um, Canberra's peer-based drug user organisation, Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy, and its uh, sister organisation, which is based at the same location in Belconnen, is uh, The Connection, Canberra's peer-based alcohol and uh, drug and alcohol service for First Nations clients. Gee, that was an interesting... For current users. For, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, La- user, well yeah. largely, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyone who needs a service. Yeah, that's or, right. People who need the service, but we're not necessarily looking at instructing people how to give up drugs if unless they want to. No, yeah? just whatever questions what or need. help they need. Yeah. yeah, that's right. We're not um, imposing, we're helping and supporting. And I tell you what, we're as hard as we may try, and I really want to have a blurt about this, 
housing is a huge problem at the moment. It's freezing cold out there, minus five this morning. I can't imagine what it's like living on the street at the moment. It's cold enough at my house. Must be awful. crying out loud. There are people who have been on emergency housing lists for 10 years, Jeffrey. Mm. Urgent emergency housing for 10 years and not getting accommodated. How does that work? How can you be urgent? It's been a long time of deliberate neglect. Well, and not people... Doing, you know, Airbnb, making Airbnbs mm, out of there when they've got a spare bedroom. It's just ludicrous. Yeah, it actually came up. Um, one of the big issues I wouldn't mind chatting about was the Four Corners. I don't know how many people saw it last night, but it was um, focused on uh, the rising amount of cocaine in Australia, which traditionally hasn't been one of the bigger uh, substance issues. No, you, do you get the feeling that some drug dealers probably think Australia and Austria are one and the same because the Yanks do? <laughs> oh, I'm sure it's possible. Can't think why they don't see it as a a viable um, uh, market base. Well, but, yeah. the cartels have certainly woken up that Australians uh, pay top dollar and they have uh, and are used to it. Got a business model. And uh, shoehorned their way in, and it was a very interesting show, um, showing the transition from the bikey set to small scale, which was dealers. basically marketing, making their own yeah. version of amphetamine, yeah, like ice type stuff, and then now it's. Cocaine is becoming a more popular drug in Australia, and yeah. it's been done on a scale like we tend to read. Um, about cartels, not maybe not on the same scale, but not like the United States. The and business Mexico. model is definitely um, well. It very fits, similar. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. So it was very interesting. I must say that the that's the first time I've ever seen, excuse me, a, a brick, if you like, or a block of cocaine, and it broken open to see what it looks like inside. I've never seen that glittering. Um, shimmering sort of colour inside the inside cocaine rather than the powdery outside stuff. It's really in- was an interesting it was. sight, yeah. And the guy who actually put on the demonstration could actually tell an enormous amount about the purity and quality just by doing that. Just breaking, by looking at, yeah, that bra- was interesting, the wasn't it? So there was some very um, interesting information and we've got uh, an article from this morning's paper as well. But anyway, we'll get to that. Uh, news from the drug war front promotes uh, the broader array of services provided by Karma. And, of course, we also report on stories relevant to illicit drug users from Australia and around the world and promote discussion and education about the need for some different approaches to dealing with the harms caused by problematic uh, drug use in a world currently of uh, only prohibition, which is a bit sad. Indeed. Um, and news from the drug wars from, uh, is produced by, as, as Jeffrey just said, by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation Advocacy, which has a range of programs for people. Uh, we believe that people who use drugs should be treated with dignity and respect both as human beings and as consumers of health and social services. 
Karma works to reduce the discrimination and stigma experienced by drug users. It also speaks for our community's equal rights by progressing drug law reform agendas. And that's an issue often raised, isn't it, Marin, about it stigma is. and especially self-stigma as well? Well, that's the other thing. It's um, Self-stigmatisation is a means by which people who use drugs are constantly kept in a state of self-imposed alienisation, alienation, sorry, from broader society because they say... they feel guilty. They apply the stigma to themselves. It's something Karma is continually attempting to address through education and community development initiatives designed to uh, engender a sense of self-worth and of community inclusiveness and integration. Uh, Karma is at the Belconnen Churches Centre, Shop 17, Level 154, Benjamin Way in Belconnen. Um, the drop-in hours are 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday to Friday, and contact can be made by landline phone on six two five three three six four three, or by emailing karma at info at karma dot org dot au. Karma also does naloxone training um, every the first Tuesday of every month. So Tuesday fortnight yep. will be the next training at the early morning centre on Northbourne Avenue, usually about 2 o'clock in the mm-hmm. afternoon, and Dave will be doing that all day more. Or uh, both. <laughs> or both, as the case may be. Um, but it's well worth doing. Um, and if you can't do the training, I mean, you can ring up and book try, and book a place to do the training, but it's also available uh, if you just front up and try to see Dave if he's there. Um, and or demo and just do a 10-minute intervention. They will quickly tell you about naloxone and how it can be used. The training takes a bit longer. It takes about an hour and a half or an hour, really, and, but, and tells you very thoroughly how to look after people who have overdosed on opioids. But uh, the intervention, the 10-minute intervention, can be done very quickly. You don't have to go for an hour and a half. But you need to contact Dave on 62533643 and find and drop in for 10 minutes and just get some naloxone to take away with you. Just the inhale, we use the nasal spray. Well, the more that's out there, the merrier. I noticed... I think everybody should have some. Just from general reading. Yeah. Um, especially in the States, there's a lot of local initiatives um, just, uh, you know, uh, mothers against um, d- deaths, you know, you know, all, all the different yeah. small local communities where people have, um, or kids have overdosed and people get organised to say, well, I don't want this to happen to another family. So they organise their own um, naloxone training and distribution and... And very sensible. I, I just think everybody should have some. And it's not hard... If you get a naloxone spray pack, it has two doses of naloxone in it, the nasal spray, and it also has a big sheet on how to apply it. You don't do a trial of it. You don't try to test spray it because that's the waste of the dose. Yeah. It's very easy to use and it's very easy to just read the information pack inside it. So, But I just think everyone should have it. It's not hard to get. Um, you can get it free if you do the training. 
Well, you can get it free at chemists now, thanks to you the federal government. You can just get it free across the counter? Yeah, certainly Lord. can at the chemist I go to. They've got a sign saying naloxone is available for free. Well, that's good to hear. Um, so I think the word has got out just as, just as the success of the program has become more and more um, known and consolidated. And, and well, the United States had arguments for such a long time on who should, who they should give um, a, nalo- a dose of naloxone yeah, to, yeah. which was crazy. You know, if they've already given it to somebody once, should they do it again? Um, and you know, sometimes I'd say, why should we have to choose between whether we should give somebody naloxone once, twice, three times? Mm. It should just happen so people don't die. And I think the same should be said for Australia. Everyone should have a naloxone packet in their bag, pocket, purse, wallet, whatever you carry. Absolutely. Well, at least here the um, the scale of morality doesn't quite come into the argument as it does in America. But that's right. We don't have to do – don't have to make that horrible choice. It's – yeah. And they've been training even in Anchorage, uh, Alaska. I noticed that I had an article from I think a few months ago that um, first responders have been given um, oh, yeah, naloxone to to provide to people. So, yeah, I just think it should be widely spread throughout the country. Everyone should have naloxone. Yep. Just because it doesn't hurt, doesn't do anything but reverse the effects of opioids and it doesn't hurt. So... It's a cheap way to save a life. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so have you um, run through the the summary of some of the services we provide? No, or? I haven't yet. Okay, but I will very quickly. We have the peer treatment support program, the Connections First Nations program, Karma Naloxone program, which we've just raved about, uh, Karma's community development and mentoring program, the Fix Peer Education program, um, the radio show, of course, that you're listening to now, uh, the Reach, Teach, Treat Thrive Hepatitis C Peer Education and Treatment Program in partnership with HEPACT. Karma Primary Health Clinic, which is on Thursdays from 10... Is it 10 to 2? Yeah. Um, And that's providing collaboration with directions. And we have a doctor and nurse on site at the Belconnen Drop-In Centre, Belconnen Premises. Um, And they do uh, the... Community said the work, the doctor and nurse will do general practitioner work, pharmacotherapy provision, including methadone, suboxone, and buvidol or depot buprenorphine treatment and hepatitis B vaccination, hep C testing and treatment. Hep C testing now is just a finger prick test. Yeah, it's very and easy. And that's really important that yep. people know that we don't have to take what's the, oh, the other thing, of course, is that don't, karma now has. A, uh, a vein finder, so you can find a viable vein um, by running the machine over your arms. Especially good for older people, yeah. Especially good for older people or for people who, if people are going to use, um, and they do, whether we like it or not, whether we encourage them to or not, better that they use safely hmm. and find a vein and not an artery to inject into. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful piece of kit. And um, the trick is to just give uh, Karma a call. 62533643, is yep. that number again? And uh, book in a time. And, um, well, especially on a Monday, Pete will be there to um, guide you through um, 
finding a vein. Finding yep. a vein and using the kit as uh, efficiently as possible. Yep. It really is quite um, an improvement from the old days of uh, trying to find, yeah. So, all right. Uh, news from the Drug War Front reports on news stories that are relevant to illicit drug users from Australia and also around the world. Many of the articles featured in the program come from other sources, including the mainstream media. The contents of this uh, broadcast slash podcast do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Karma and the Connection. Karma does not condone nor condemn drug use and we do not promote illegal activity. However, we do recognise that drug use happens and will continue to happen uh, regardless of laws and United Nations conventions. As such, Karma focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy and community development. So we seek to reduce the harms associated with drug use and its criminalisation through the provision of programs that foster community development and the delivery of person-centred holistic health care. Karma advocates for equity of health service delivery for all people, which um, seems a, a quite a reasonable proposition and uh, we're coming a long way in that direction, which is excellent. Okay, I've got a song. I thought I'd play um, Jimmy Cliff. And uh, just before you do, oh, how right. do they come, Jeffrey? I forgot to mention the can test is available on Thursday's uh, the drug checking facility. Yep. Um, and Karma has a peer worker there, Mitch, who will help guide you through the process of getting your drugs checked for purity and quality, and to find out what other toxins might be in them. Um, and we also have a Mandarin-speaking peer worker. Was I, it Mandarin or Cantonese? Mandarin. Uh, Mandarin, yeah. Mandarin-speaking peer worker at Karma, and I've forgotten to mention that, so I beg your pardon. No problem at all. Okay, this is, as you mentioned, uh, Jimmy Cliff and uh, his classic The Harder, the Harder they, they Come, Come, which came from the classic movie about Jamaica and yeah, I um, saw that. Actually, it was on the other night. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, not Jimmy Cliff. Actually, it was about um, who was the first guy that did that. Anyway, there was someone who made the first feature film ever in Jamaica. Um, um, yeah, about uh, Rastafarianism, and, and it became a huge hit. But the Jimmy Cliff was a uh, an actor, a yeah. follow-up. Yeah, kind oh, of okay. performer. Right. Yeah. Well, this is the harder they come, Jimmy Cliff. Love it. <laughs>
All right, it's coming up about seven minutes to 11, and you're listening to News from the Drug War Front, brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Home Minimisation and Advocacy, and that was, of course, uh, Jimmy Cliff and The The Harder Harder They They Come. Come. Great song. Yeah, one of the big eight. Yeah, Bob Marley was the name of the person I was trying to remember. Jeffrey told me just when we went off to listen to Jimmy Cliff. It was just around about the same time and just that it was on the other night. Anyway. All right, we've got a quick piece that's just asking a philosophical question. What lessons can we learn from the origin of the war on drugs? Uh, It comes out of America. It says, Americans for Prosperity senior criminal justice fellow uh, Greg Glod and actor, writer and comedian Clayton English recently launched a podcast titled The War on Drugs. The podcast examines the failed policies of America's war on drugs and its repercussions that persist to this very day. A constant string of fentanyl-related headlines dominate the news cycle, drug overdose deaths are numbering more than 100,000 each year, and more than half of all Americans personally know someone who has died from an overdose. It's very clear the country needs help handling its drug crisis. So how did we get here? Why did the war on drugs fail so spectacularly? The podcast answers those questions with the first two episodes exploring the origins of the war on drugs, revealing that it was never really ever about combating drug use in the first place. In the series' first episode, guest speaker Johan Hari, well-known author and speaker, reveals the sinister beginnings of the war on drugs. Harry Anslinger, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics at the end of Prohibition, fabricated vicious stories about drug use and minority communities to keep his control in power once alcohol became legal. The seeds of the war on drugs were all about control, not about helping people. <laughs> That's a surprise. Yeah. Yohan Hari also helps to unpack addiction, noting that the war on drugs is based on the false premise that addiction is caused solely by exposure to a drug itself. He cites research showing that addiction is ultimately fueled by pain and despair. How have we handled this delicate issue? Government overreach and, and over-incarceration, which have done nothing but tear families apart, trap people within the criminal justice system and place an enormous burden on taxpayers. Indeed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Quote, the United States has imprisoned more people as a proportion of its population than any human society ever, Haru notes. Quote, people have an addiction problem. We don't help them reconnect, we put barriers between them. Mandatory minimums, maximum damage. The second episode elaborates on the big government approach to incarcerating our way out of the problem of drug addiction and how this has backfired. Guest Eric Sterling, special counsel to the US House Committee on the Judiciary from 79 to 1989, helped draft the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which instituted harsh mandatory minimum sentencing laws for many drug offences. As he explains, these sentences did not come from a place of reason, evidence or a desire to solve the issues surrounding drug use, but were meant to be as punitive as possible. In fact, they were essentially decided by a DC cop who, it turns out, had lied about his expertise and perjured himself countless times. What a surprise, says Marion under her breath. There are better ways to approach our drug crisis than the war on drugs. You may notice this falls right in line with the stuff that Jeff and I talk about every week. 
To repair families, fight addiction and reduce crime, we need to develop a bottom-up approach to the drug crisis that ends its reliance on big government. The criminal justice system is ill-equipped to handle addiction issues. On top of that, being branded with a criminal record makes it that much harder for justice-involved people who may be fighting addiction to successfully re-enter society. And the reliance on incarceration has led to a staggering racial disparities. The response to drug use in America should instead be based on community-centric rehabilitative programs proven to work. Treatment programs, the legalisation of marijuana, further research on the benefits and risks of other controlled substances and right-sizing government involvement can help us tackle the drug crisis without needlessly ruining families and lives. That's something that, I mean, that is it's no news summary. to people no. and no news to us, no. but it just might give people some background on where the drug war on drugs comes from. And it's a, a really useful little article. It came from uh, by Americans for Prosperity. And it's a, it's just... It's just the truth about where it all started. It was really not about drugs in the first place. And that's, we talk about the war on drugs, but most regular listeners will know by now that the reason it's called a war on drugs was because it was named as such. And how you can have a war on an inanimate mm. entity, I do not know. But... And Richard Nixon was the one who said America has he coined number the one phrase. problem. Yes. It's, yeah. A war on drugs. That's right. So, well, they don't fight back, do they? So, no. But that policy continues to wreak havoc. The, the other thing about that, of course, is that you uh, privatise prisons, build more prisons, and you have to fill them up. Exactly. And as we have noted here in the ACT, have we not? And the problem spreads globally, as we'll talk about after the um, National Radio News. There's uh, quite a feature of late about the impact of cocaine uh, oh, and the yes. increasing volumes that are... Well, that's interesting, Jeff, because we've said a few times that there hasn't been a great deal of cocaine no. that we've noted in Australia. And now, boom! We have a the cartels have discovered Australia, and so now there's a market because Australians are prepared to pay exorbitant prices for their drugs, um, and so they get charged exorbitant prices for their drugs. Well, it's interesting. There's a, a feature in um, Sydney Morning Herald this morning about a cocaine sting uh, netting Australians. Jerry yep. told, and also we'll do that after the news, yeah, will we? And Four Corners last night oh, and their special. Out. Which um, was really <laughs> worth watching, and I recommend you watch it on iView because yeah. it gets repeated um, at, yes. your, at your convenience. I thought I just might uh, whip through this story from the City Morning Herald because it sort of sets the, the tone for this um, cocaine um, program. Yeah, the expansion of cocaine uh, availability, yeah, and interest and selling and just the whole the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, cocaine nets uh, sting nets Aussies. Uh, a plot to import more than a tonne of cocaine into Australia began with a shipping container of steel from China and it was thrown off course by an undercover police sting via New Zealand and ended with a suitcase of cash and arrests in a Serbian hotel. David, I won't give his whole name, 58, had pled not guilty to conspiring to import and 
I'll just put my reading glasses on. And have it That's a, a good idea. Yeah, Makes all the difference to ah, out the red little print, Jeff. That's much clearer. Um, <laughs> conspiring to import and possess a commercial quality of a border-controlled substance. His co-accused, um, a man 39, has pled guilty to the possession conspiracy charge but not guilty to the importation conspiracy charge. The two men are on trial in the District Court in Sydney. In his opening address to the jury, <clears throat> Crown Prosecutor Sean Flood said Border uh, Force officers examined a shipping container from Shanghai in April 1st, 2017 and found 2,500 blocks totaling about 1.28 tonnes of impure cocaine with prefabricated steel. Flood said the import of the uh, container was identified on shipping documents as Solutions for Steel and Campbell described himself in emails as the company's managing director and chief executive. He allegedly arranged for the container to be delivered to an address in uh, Landillo in Western Sydney, hired a truck and fork forklift and brought a second-hand van for 16000 after asking if it could carry about 1.2 tonnes. The prosecutor and the Australian Federal Police pretended the container of cocaine-filled steel had been lost. Campbell was allegedly heard on an intercepted phone call telling a cargo company worker, it's going to effing cost me a bomb with this client because I told him it was here. On October 24, 2017, an undercover New Zealand police officer, using the name Henry, contacted the cargo company and pretended that he'd found the container. Campbell is alleged to have been the contact person for the delivery of the container and chased its location, once notified it had been, quote, lost, while Waters is alleged to have been one of three people who decided together to import the cocaine. Um, so, you know, that's quite a significant amount of, of the drug. That's a large amount, very large amount. And I would say the, the prosecutor's case is looking pretty solid, although they said there was no surveillance ev evidence involving Waters at all in 2017. He was not a principal and had played a part pretending to be someone that he wasn't at a meeting in Serbia. The trial continues. So um, that's setting us up for um, discussion about uh, the Four Corners story last night. In the meantime, I'll just play a song. This is um, Hypocrisy is the Greatest Luxury is the album. And the song is Television, uh, Drug of a Nation. Well, on a brighter note, commercial break. The government has now banned the carrying of spears. Stop about every thousand miles ain't asking too much, is it? You might wish to uh, stay on and listen. It was a place where everything was legal. I met this woman. So if you're looking for emotional satisfaction, my advice to you is seek professional help. Thank you for joining us live on the air. My pleasure. One Nation under God has turned into one nation under the influence of one drug. Television, the drug of a nation, raiding ignorance and feeding radiation on television. The drug of a nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation. TV, its satellite links by United States of Unconsciousness. Apathetic, therapeutic, and extremely addictive. The methadone metronome, pumping out 150 channels 24 hours a day. You can flip through all of them, and still there's nothing worth watching. TV is the reason why less than 10% of our nation reads books daily. Why most people think Central America means Kansas. 
socialism means un-American and apartheid is a new headache remedy. Absorbed in this world, it's so hard to find us. It shapes our minds the most. Maybe the mother of our nation should remind us that we're sitting too close to the television. The drug of a nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television. The drug of the nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation. TV is a stomping ground for political candidates. Where bears in the woods are chased by Grecian formula at bald eagles. TV is mechanized politics, remote control over the masses, co-sponsored by environmentally safe gases. Watch for the PBS special. It's a perpetuation of the two-party system, where image takes precedence over wisdom, where sound by politics are served to the fast food culture. Where straight teeth in your mouth are more important than the words that come out of it. Race baiting is the way to get selected. Willie Horton or Willie not get elected on television. The drug of a nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television. The drug of a nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation. On the screen is an address where you can mail your tithe offering or gift of blood. Okay. Is it the reflector or the director? Does it imitate us or do we imitate it? Because a child watches 1,500 murders before he's 12 years old. And then we wonder why we created a Jason generation that learns to laugh rather than abhor the whore. TV is a place where armchair generals and quarterbacks can experience firsthand the excitement of video warfare as the theme song is sung in the background. Sugar-sweet sitcoms that leave us with a bad actor taste, while pop stars metamorphosize into soda pop stars. You saw the video, you heard the soundtrack. Well, now go buy the soft drink. Well, the only cola that I support would be a union COLA cost of living allowance on television. The drug of the nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television. The drug of the nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation. have become standard. TV is a place where phrases are redefined, like recession to necessary downturn, crude oil on a beach to moose, civilian death to collateral damages, and being killed by your own army is now called friendly fire. TV is a place where the pursuit of happiness has become the pursuit of trivia. Where toothpaste and cars have become sex objects. 
Their imagination is sucked out of children by a cathode ray nipple. TV is the only wet nurse that would create a cripple. Television, the drug of the nation, breeding ignorance, feeding radiation on television. The drug of the nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television. The drug of the nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television. The drug of the nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation. It's a good song. It still stands up really well. Television. Well, drug of a nation. true, isn't it? The drug of the nation. Yeah, it still stands up pretty well. It certainly uh, drew, I think it drew people away from the dinner table, yeah, started watching TV and watching television while they were having dinner and there goes communication down the tubes. And now we've got mobile phones. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, that was uh, Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy and Television, The Drug of a Nation. It's coming up about uh, quarter past 11. You're listening to news from the drug war front. Brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Minimisation and Advocacy and its sister organisation, The Connection for First Nations People. Okay, just want to mention uh, last night's Four Corners. And, um, of course, I uh, haven't got a transcript or anything, but just from my own um, memories last night... Um, it was a very insightful, um, to my mind, cocaine has never been one of the major illicit drugs in Australia. No, we've, well, I think I've said a couple of times on the show, you know, I really have, don't know that I've ever had um, cocaine, pure cocaine anyway. If I did, it was uh, so subtle. <laughs> I thought subtle might have meant you're not going to feel it, and uh, certainly I didn't, so I'm gathering that it probably wasn't as good as it was, it was uh, it advertised to be. Well, it's been a general sense that there hasn't been the market for it, that it tends to be very much a professional's drug, um, people, you know, making excellent money, high-pressure jobs. Yeah, it was very expensive. Yeah, yep. um, with possibly, you know, um, high-level contacts to be able to import it, etc. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you had to have plenty of money. And the guy on uh, TV that was interviewed about it said he'd been dealing for, what, 30 years, did he, and never been caught? Yeah. Yeah. The good thing about this report from uh, the ABC journalist was he examined a whole range of different people who'd been involved at different times and yeah. talked about changes that have occurred up until recently when it seems that um, the more organised uh, cartels from Latin America and uh, Mexico and the US and places like that had spotted Australia as a business opportunity um, where Australians uh, pay yeah, top dollar for their drugs. And, and we thought the Americans were slow. <laughs> Sounds like the drug cartels were even slower. Well, the one thing about them is once they decide to um, make a business decision, they don't go half, yeah, halfway. Yeah, they go full, t- full tilt at it, yeah? 
you know, he, he sort of talked about the early days with uh, bikey gangs organising uh, small scale, and 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 it was all always a very small scale, four or five people getting involved. Um, uh, Depending you know, upon the size of your gang, I guess. There yeah. Were, yeah. And and but it it wasn't as huge as some of the other illicit drug markets that you know traditionally we've seen in Australia. No, and it, the um, the nature of the drugs that they were producing too were um, somewhat um, suspicious too. But that certainly started the uh, the use of um, firearms and the drug wars in well, Australia. Well, yeah. This is one of the problems with um, indeed the serious types. Yeah, they they don't muck around. No, that's right. Well, it's too much. So much money involved in it. It's such a huge. Um, the potential for financial gain is so enormous because of the war on drugs, because of the legal status of it, that it's well worth fighting to to gain a great proportion of the market. Yeah. Mm. So now we're looking at um, we're looking at drug cartels who are coming into Australia and going to make even more of a mess of the place than it already is. Yeah. Well, I think he described them as trigger happy and volatile. Indeed. Whereas in the past there was capacity to uh, negotiate and work around problems, and violence was uh, not wanted. You know. So we were talking about people. We're talking about intelligence as opposed to just violence. And uh, you know, lack of capacity to use language as a means of communication and negotiation as a means of a means of making things work out. Just let's wipe out the opposition. Yeah, just shoot them our way or the you're, highway. You're yeah. dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so it was a, a very interesting report and um, surprised me a little bit that it, well, one, it had taken so long for those cartels to spot the business opportunity in Australia. And they also talked about um, people who had jobs as what they call the door, and that was people who either had border security clearance, yeah. um, people that controlled um, parcels that came through airports, um, you know, a whole range of people that so had... gateway drugs. Gateway gate- drug sort of... Yeah, gateway people who detect drugs, I beg your pardon, yeah. And that was a very valuable commodity that could Indeed. be turned turn into serious money and also was very um, valuable information for people who wanted to make sure their product got through. So that that was an interesting um, aspect of the whole business. And, and Jeffrey, is it somewhat like I remember in the early days when marijuana was um, was so demonised, they actually had the people from the electricity authority who used to go around and read the meters, and when people were growing marijuana, growing cannabis in their backyards, then the people they were um, I don't know if they were paid or if they were merely um, coerced into notifying the police that they'd seen marijuana plants or cannabis plants in people's backyards because they had access to people's backyards because that's where the meters were read. That's right. So I wonder if there's, that's, the, I mean, another kind of um, vehicle for acquiring information because I don't know that uh, cartels are likely to be using the, the tip line, uh. Yeah. Very, for instance. Very <laughs> unlikely, very <laughs> unlikely. Another comment I recall was um, he made a comparison between dopamine and money. He was trying to work out which one was <laughs> <all right. laughs> Which one was more powerful. More powerful, which was 
um, quite Depends interesting. Depends on which end of the which end of the um, the consumption spectrum you're on, I suppose. Uh, what else can I recall that came out of it? Um, what about the look of it? Oh, that, Jeff, yeah. that was amazing, wasn't it? The what what cocaine actually looks like, I, because that was something I was unaware of. I'd never seen an eighty four percent pure brick. Yes, but, and the, it actually looked like diamonds when he broke it open, didn't it? Yeah, and, yeah? and the fellow that, that actually did the demonstration said that he could actually to one or two percent, you know. Yeah, close determine to the, determine the potency of it, yeah. just, just by the way it broke up. Well, after thirty years, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? And the smell of it, yeah. Well, it's not it's not a drug I know, have ever known much about. So, no, um, well, because we haven't ever had an awful lot of it here, and if what we what has been available has been available to few, very few people, um, usually in fairly tightly controlled circumstances, which was the way. Heroin um, found its way into Canberra too. That was a very controlled, tightly controlled um, community in the early days. Right. And uh, then it became, uh, with I guess it became uh, connected with um, a particular immigrants groups, immigra- immigration groups. And it seemed to change over time. Didn't Indeed, it, it, it and. <laughs> The groups that it was uh, connected with were actually attached to or surrounding the legal growing, you know, the internationally Mm. permitted areas for growing um, opium poppies. So it was really interesting that those places like the Golden Triangle and, and there was, and then, um, yeah, and, you know, the, and then Middle Eastern. Areas so people were getting you know the opioids were coming in that way. Now we're talking about cocaine, which comes from a different area mm. and a different um, and attitude. a different climate too. Yeah, different attitude towards the value of life too. It, by oh, the sound well, indeed, not only that's a very short-acting drug. Mm. So, so um, the consumption patterns for cocaine users are going to be completely different. I um, mean, heroin or opioids are generally uh, four to six hours half-life mm. in your bloodstream, whereas cocaine's a much shorter half-life. It's like a half hour, 30-minute okay. to an hour. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's I don't know what the exact half-life is for cocaine, but it's much shorter than it is for opioids. Yeah, I always had a sense that it was more involved with highly stressed professional occupations, you know, that needed to be right on the game and... Thinking. Well, and have their head buzzing, yeah. yeah, full of ideas and creativity, and yeah, the, I think I suppose we go back to my perception. Always has been that it's horses for courses with drugs. People use the drugs they use for what they get out of them. It does what they want it to mm. do, whatever drug they're using. So, uh, cannabinoids do things like enhance your appetite, um, your capacity to sleep. Um, reduce your muscle tension, opioids, um, reduce your ability to feel anything other than um, relaxed and get rid of pain. 
So, you know, yes, horses yeah. for courses and, and cocaine was more for the creative side of life and getting things happening and up and going. And amphetamines was for staying awake for a long time. Mm. You know, so long-distance truck drivers. and So people use drugs, my, my theory, was for the, what they got out of them. Not because they were poly-drug users. People, yeah, sure, there are always going to be people who will want to try all sorts of drugs. But doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is a poly drug user. No, no. Anyway, go I on think, about I, the cocaine. Sorry, Jeffrey. No, no. I, th- I think that's a very fair point. That you know, it's not a one size fits all. No. Um, situation like it's been peddled by a few people. Um, what, what else did they go on? Uh, they sort of talked about there yeah, some of the comparative histories with other drugs. You know, Vietnam. Um, well, that was the, what, yeah, that was the beginning of the opioid, I think, the opioid um, uh, invasion in Australia, really, was the American soldiers coming over on R&R leave. They came to Sydney and they brought a lot of drugs with them. Yeah, this um, fellow had been doing it for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years, said so he reached the point where it got to the point that every one or two weeks he was going to a funeral and um, he just couldn't take that anymore so it was there were some interesting personal anecdotes about just the impact and how much you could take and this is of opioids of, of cocaine of cocaine yeah. okay yeah and um just whether the money and the stress and the lifestyle was worth um what you got out of it so um now look i actually learned quite a lot that i wasn't aware of and i strongly recommend people to get on their eye view and and check it out it was only on last night um it's the sort of story Four Corners are good at. Um, but, yeah, the scene where he um, takes out the plate and breaks the brick and <laughs> can go judge it by smell, um, how strong it is, is um, pretty amazing. Um, yes, because the chemicals that they use to, to create cocaine or to make cocaine out of, from the coca leaf are um, – what sort of drugs are they? They're like um, – um, Alkaline sort of substances. Some chemicals, yeah. Yeah, it has a very chemically smell about it, I think. Yeah, but so does. So, I mean, I always go back to opioids because that's what I know. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I've been exposed to most of my life. But that also has a very chemically smell about it. And the the strength of um, opioids can be, I think you can tell by the the kind of uh, smell and taste that you get from it. Exactly. As well as the effect. Anyway, I strongly recommend if anyone's got an interest in um, that issue generally or cocaine in particular, get uh, get well, on your idea. If it's going to become more freely available, I think, um, first of all, make use of the, ca- the drug checking unit facility here because yep. I think that's important and there have been some alerts put out because of the kinds of drugs that have been um, contaminated with other products, uh, it's worth finding out how how strong they are and what else is in the drug you're getting. If you've been told it's cocaine, go and get it checked. Same with opioids, same with pills. Go and get them checked at the drug checking um, service. It can take up to less than 30 minutes really, to get it done. Um, and just be cautious. You can always have more. Exactly. You can never have less, yeah? Well, it's funny you mention that. One of the people who was um, sort of kind of representing the uh, more upmarket um, 
cartel side of things, you know, the really serious players. The ones with the guns, you mean? <laughs> test, test everything. That was his first. Is that what he said? Yeah, well, that makes sense anyway, doesn't it? I would have thought so. Yeah. Definitely. And uh, now that we can, I mean, that was the other thing we were going to say. Queensland's going to be getting drug checking um, facilities up there shortly, they, they said, and we had an article on that. I don't know if we did it or not. Um, but it's yeah, interesting that they're going to go, not going to do um, a pilot test. They're going to just go on the uh, on the information going from Canberra's Can Test Drug Checking Unit and uh, going to make drug checking available in Queensland, and that's really useful. Well, that's really important, and I noted an ANU um, article that um, says exactly that, Marion. Um, uh, David Caldicott's been a big player in this uh, scene in the ACT, but also now in Queensland. Yes, yeah. Uh, good old David. I think Dr. Caldicott needs to uh, get him an OA or something, or, you know, whatever is the top award, give it to him so he can make a statement about how important the stuff that he's doing is because he's been involved in such a lot of good and. Open-minded and intel- intelligent uh, approach to drug use, rather than just abstinence-based, just say no stuff. Yeah. Well, it looks like it's coming. This article says while the timeline's yet to be announced, once up and running, Queenslanders who use illicit drugs can have them checked to see what they actually contain before taking them. Uh, this should reduce the risk of people overdosing on both unexpected and high-potency substances which is great, and death from harmful additives and mixtures. Uh, the Queensland Health Minister acknowledged the groundwork of uh, David and his colleagues in the ACT um, and mentioned the successful testing at Groove and the Move in 2018-2019 and the fixed site service since 2022 can test. So it shows that the that whole success is it's a bit like naloxone starting here. It starts here, small scale, Works and well, and that's the thing, Jeffrey. It doesn't have to be huge. And for so many years, the the argument has been, where is the research? But not being prepared to accept any of the research from overseas as being relevant to Australia, saying, "Oh, yeah, but that's the United States culturally. That's completely different." And that's how um, I guess. The needle exchange stuff got started was because of the HIV epidemic in the United States in the first place amongst injecting drug users. But now we have the Queensland government prepared to accept the uh, pilot program in Canberra as evidence that drug checking works and taking it on board and using it as a model for Hopefully they'll use a peer as well to introduce people to the facilities. I think it would have to be mandatory, sure. Well, hope- well, you would hope so. I mean, they need to think about the whole model, not just the drug-checking model, because people, I think, are as encouraged to go into can test by the fact that Mitch is there, by the fact there is a peer there to encourage them to come in, talk about what drugs they have and what they want to get checked and whether they want to use them or not. Um, And that's really important because that's about making people feel safe, making drug users feel safe in whatever service they're entering. Yes? And also 
given us data which is incontrovertible, which I think is really important. You know, this is not just people's guesswork or anecdotal. It's real evidence. And it goes on to say the Netherlands has been offering a system since the late 1990s. Uh, It now extends to over 30 sites. uh, And drug checking services have been rolled out in other countries, including Portugal, Spain, Austria, Mexico, Canada, New Zealand, and some parts of the UK. So it's not like it's only uh, in one place. Um, Good on Canberra for being the first. And uh, let's hope Queensland follows up with uh, the second. Indeed. All right, might play a quick song and then we'll finish up with an interesting old story for older drug users. This is... uh, Actually, I think it's about the book Go Ask Alice. Go Ask Alice. Been around for a very long, long time. time, but anyway, we're going to do it, and we have a bit of a chat about it too. I think because it's of, a really interesting one of the first books I ever read on the subject. Is okay, that right? This is uh, Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath from Black Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, right. I haven't heard that in a while, uh, Marion. Yeah, I'm not surprised, Jeff. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was never a great Black Sabbath fan. He's sort of grown on a lot of people just because... A little bit like fungus, I'm afraid, for me. He's just... <laughs> I mean, it, probably because... At the, the, pro, the family the, show, the, family the Osbournes, show, yeah. yeah. the Osbournes. Yeah. Because Sharon's a smart woman. Oh, very yeah? smart. Well, her um, dad was a very huge um, member of the business, you know, um, promoting... Well, the music business or yeah. just promotions? No, music, well, promotions, um, yeah. uh, leading careers, putting on shows... Um, and she probably picked up Ozzy herself, she yeah. Picked, yeah. I can't say Ozzy getting off his bum to pick her up. <laughs> she learned from her dad and yeah. learned well. And well, she, yep. she picked him up and, ma- and marketed him, really, didn't she? And marketed the family, if you like. And look, look where he's got to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely brilliant. And plus the kids as well have prospered, you know, in all sorts of ways. Um, Indeed, TV yeah. shows, uh, fashion. Yeah, no, I, no I, look, I admire her. I admire the, what she's done and how she's managed to make a, um, uh, make a, if you like, an amusing um, uh, plaything, if you like, or visual out of someone who's stoned all the time. Absolutely, <laughs> and you've got to give her credit for that because, and she just she just says, well, you know, that's the way it goes. That's yeah. what happens yep. when you hook up with somebody who uses. You either put up with it or you piss them off. I, th- I think it was the excess excess of drinking that really um, well knocked him. Did aside, a lot of yeah. his marbles, and I well, think he said absolutely. So. And I mean that. He didn't die, which no. is huge, yeah. it, if you think about it. When you think about the number of people of... Um, He's ill of all music, time, yeah. Of yeah. Rock, play, rock and roll singers who or artists who did die from yeah. drug overdoses. And I think, you know, Sharon looked after Ozzy from go to woe and made sure that he didn't die. I bet you she had naloxone. All the time. Yeah, I'll bet. But, yeah, alcohol would, is inevitably going to be one of the most destructive drugs that we have seen because of the damage that it does to families and because of the nature. It actually allows people to bring out the nasty side and, and he's gives them permission to beat up their partners. And it's just really bad drug. I'm sorry. I just can't. No, he's acknowledged that side yeah. of himself and in, in he shame. He doesn't like it, yeah. No. All right, let's um, see if we can get through this because this was a, uh, an early book that I read, Go Ask, yeah. Ask Alice. I think it's a, yeah. And uh, this piece is from the ABC website and it's saying it's the haunting diary of an anonymous teenager was a bestseller and, effect, and an effective tool in the war on drugs. But was it real? Good question. There's a picture of the rather well-read cover. Yeah. <laughs> When Go Ask Alice was first released in 1971, one of its biggest mysteries and perhaps its best-selling point was who was the author, or rather, it was the absence of an author. Instead, listed beneath the title on the book's cover was one word that sparked all kinds of questions. Anonymous. (laughs) Who were they? Why did they choose to be anonymous? And what happened to them? An editor's note included within the first few pages of the diary only revealed the pages were, quote, based on the actual diary of a 15-year-old drug user. Unsurprisingly, it became an instant bestseller with more than 3 million copies flying off the shelves within the first three years alone. It's a wow. lot of copies from back then. Yeah. In the five decades since, the book has never once gone out of print. That's incredible, isn't it? It became a TV um, movie uh, with William Shatner as the diarist's father, 
was adapted for the stage, won countless awards and accolades. It began, uh, as so many tales of teenage woe do, with a devastating crush and a secret journal whose pages could contain all the angst of adolescence. But this story quickly spiralled into something more sinister, ensnaring its teenage readers and striking fear into the hearts of parents around the world. Alice is plunged into a world of drug peddling, addiction, hallucinations and sexual assault, and it all begins with just one acid-laced drink at a party. Hence, maybe hence the song, yes? Could be. Go ask Alice when she's 10 feet tall. She's tall, yeah. yeah Jefferson airplane. airplane, yeah. yeah. And the clincher, it was all based on a true story, or so readers thought. Mm. Go ask Alice, an acid trip of a read. From the front page, this book promised readers an almost irresistibly tragic tale. Quote, I just saw this cover. It was this girl with this sort of half-shadowed face. And then it had just eight, just these eight words, which have been luring people to that book for 50 years. Go ask Alice, a real diary by Anonymous. Author and journalist Rick Emerson says, The book opens in an undisclosed American town in 1968, where the central character, who most readers refer to as Alice though her name is never actually revealed, is grappling with the standard trials and tribulations of being a teenager. She struggles to adjust to a new school and make friends after her family relocates for her father's job. But on a trip back to her hometown for the holidays, a, quote, cool girl invites Alice to a party that changes the trajectory of the rest of her life. After her first accidental acid trip... Alice unknowingly accepts a glass of coke that is sparked with LSD. She starts hanging around with the hip crowd and experimenting with more drugs and dabbling in risky sex. Things escalate when she and her new friends start dating college boys who convince them to start selling drugs to school kids and the girls soon find themselves running away together. In Big Bad San Francisco, Alice and her friend try to put their past behind them and dream of opening a store together. But soon Alice is hooked on heroin and is brutally raped, entering a vicious cycle of relapse and recovery with bouts of homelessness and trouble with the law. A priest eventually reunites Alice with her family, but her former friend's uh, drug... Her former friend's drug the teen against her will, sending her into a horror-fueled hallucination that lands her in a psychiatric hospital. After a tumultuous recovery, Alice ends her diary finally free of drugs and hopeful for the future, but the epilogue was one gut punch. The subject of this book died three weeks after her decision not to keep another diary. Her parents came home from a movie and found her dead. They called the police and the hospital, but there was nothing they could do. Okay, the diary that never went out of print. Go Ask Alice has long been criticised for its extreme depiction of drug use, which many say often verges on aspirational. I think a lot of people said this sounds a bit sus, like it's trying to make it alluring or something worth doing. Well, it probably didn't say don't do it or just say no on every page, which is... Well, it wouldn't have sold three million copies in the first couple of years. Indeed. The book's title was apparently inspired by the lyrics of Jefferson Airplane's psychedelic (laughs) song, White Rabbit. 
The diary, yeah. So it was the other way around, Jeffrey. They based it on the the song. They made the book after the song, yeah. Which was a classic in itself. Indeed. The diary's content outraged parents in the 1970s and divided opinion. Some believed its shocking depictions would act as a cautionary tale for teenagers, while others argued the book was obscene and should be just banned in schools. Well, they probably described sex, Jeffrey. Well, that wouldn't be too good, yeah. Yeah. One mother was so disgusted by it, she founded a group to get the book banned from her, oh. from a school and expressed doubts to a reporter on whether the diary was actually written by a 15-year-old. And this is where I probably agree. Yeah, um, probably had three-syllable three words in it, did it? Well, <laughs> it seems like a, an editorial, let's write a book that will sell. I don't, well, who, who knows? a little bit like the diary of Anne Frank. Yeah, yeah. They reckon her father wrote that. So, that I mean, right? who's to know? Yeah. There were other factors that made the book a success. The idea that it was someone's diary made it tantalising, as if the reader were committing one of the ultimate taboos by delving into the mind of a complete stranger. It was also one of the first books of its kind, written by a teenager and marketed to young adults, a genre in its infancy in the 1970s. Yeah. And then there was the protagonist, 15-year-old Alice, whose diary confessions contained snippets of authenticity, um, despite the far-fetched plot. Quote, it really kind of captures the feeling of what it's like to go through adolescence. You just have this crazy surge of emotions and contradictory feelings, Emerson says. Every day is either the best day of your life or it's the end of the world, sometimes in the same day. And that's teenagehood anyway, isn't it? That is true. Adolescence, yeah. yeah. uh, Don't argue with that. Alice could have been describing the growing pains of teenagers anywhere. She could have been anybody. Perhaps that's part of why it took decades for the book to be exposed as a fabrication. Oh. And for its author to be identified as a fraud. Oh, indeed. The War on Drugs and the Culture of Fear. Timing also likely helped. US historian David Farber says Go Ask Alice came at a perfect at the perfect moment to tap into an undercurrent of uncertainty and fear in the American public. And not just about drugs. In the late 60s, Americans had been grappling with the Vietnam War, the assassinations of Robert F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King, as well as shocking violent crimes like the Manson family killings. The U.S. was also, quote, the U.S. was also in the midst of a huge student revolt against many of the ways the United States was organised and it was a racist society. It was a sexist society, Professor Farber says. And young people were looking for new answers to old problems. Thousands of those young people went searching for answers further afield, leading to a surge in teenage runaways towards the end of the decade. At the same time that the United States' disastrous involvement in the Vietnam War was drawing to a close, a new war was beginning. A heroin epidemic was ravaging inner-city communities, mostly affecting poor and ethnic minority groups, while marijuana was on the up amongst the white, middle-aged high school and college kids. Quote, many Americans were trying to make sense of the fast-growing appeal of some illegal drugs, in particular marijuana, but other drugs as well, as well, Professor Farber says. He says there was a kind of, quote, chaotic uncertainty, end quote, around the drug use at this time, during this time. Congress passed the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act, of course, in 1970, which deemed everything from marijuana to LSD to heroin as a Schedule One drug. The following summer, US President Nixon gave the famous speech that launched 
a decades-long war on drugs, he declared drug abuse, quote, public enemy number one, <laughs> end quote, and kicked off the war on drugs. Alongside fear, there was a sense that the culture was shifting. Quote, the presumption that white middle-class people had their values, their cultural conventions, their moral imperatives, ruled American society, was clearly being contested uh, in the 60s and 70s, Professor Farber says, and that really threw a lot of people off. Yeah, I think that was a confusing time. Um, Mystery behind Sparks' diaries. Beatrice Sparks watched as her book Go Ask Alice smashed publishing sales after years of trying to make it in the publishing world, she'd written a bestseller, but nobody knew who she was. As you already know, Mrs Sparks is dedicated to assisting young people and is willing to remain anonymous in order to get the message uh, before the public, her lawyer wrote, as the book contract was being finalised. Her publishers believed it might seem somewhat unauthentic if the diary of a 15-year-old was published under the name of a Mormon housewife from Utah. <laughs> It turned out to be one of the great ironies of the book, Emerson says. Its success was largely accomplished because Sparks was totally erased from it. Isn't that... It, it's a really bizarre story. It is strange. So Sparks worked on dozens of other pictures only to be repeatedly knocked back. Eventually she signed a, a deal for two books and came to the conclusion there was nothing stopping her from taking credit for Go Ask Alice in the press. Okay. Interesting. So, yeah. So is it uh, there's a little bit of just uh, black in the end there, if you want to just... For the first that. decade after its publication, Go Ask Alice was treated as authentic by most people. Emerson says, though, there were others, or there were outliers as some libraries classified the book as fiction or refused to give it a designation. Quote, by the time we get to 2000, 2005, that's starting to shift. The internet helped to accelerate that because people who had doubts found other people who had doubts, Emerson said. But even if the diaries were mostly fabrications, as Emerson claimed, it's clear that Sparks' impact is enduring. Her subjects may not have existed, but the themes she covered in her books, including drugs, teen pregnancy and HIV, were real issues that had a significant impact on young people. As for the questions of whether Alice is real or not, it really depends on who you ask. Quote, what I learned was that there are two ideas. One, that Go Ask Alice is entirely fake and entirely fictional, and the other is that it's entirely authentic, Emerson says. Neither of those are really connect, uh, correct. The truth of what happened is sort of somewhere in between. Mm. Very interesting, isn't it? It is, But indeed. I think it's true that, uh, you know, accurate fake or in between, it still raised issues of relevance in that era. Well, if we're talking about a Mormon mother from middle America, mm. it sounds like she was writing about what could be the most horrible thing she could think of that could happen to her, like a, a tale of take care, beware Disaster. of the green-eyed yeah. monster with, you know, there be dragons over the other side of the world. Indeed. And, yeah, a story of disaster um, and a morality tale yeah, that well. turned into something that was quite, um, because it stated the worst that could possibly happen and this person didn't die until the very end of the book where she gets better and then dies, what, from getting three, weeks, by later, three yeah. weeks later. But, you know, it's a, um, 
the reality of life is that teenagers will go through that stuff. Absolutely. Most people go through phases of their lives where they go up and down like yo-yos, yeah? Yeah. Anyway. No, I'm glad we did that. Interesting I, I remember it well. I yeah. remember it having an impact on oh. me. I wasn't thinking about is this true or not. I just assumed it was true. But, yeah, um, yeah it's had definitely had an impact. And uh, anyway, that takes us out for another show. Thank you so much for yeah, listening. Yeah, we're not going to be able to play Could Substitute, so oh, never mind. Did you bring I brought Golden, Golden Brown, Brown so we can play a bit of that. Okay. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. See you next week. See ya. Texture like sun Lays me down With my mind she runs Throughout the night No need to fight Never a frown With golden brown Every time Just like the last On her ship Tied to the mast Two distant lands Takes both my hands Never a frown with golden brown Golden brown, fine attemptress through the ages she's heading west From far away, stays for a day